a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back. I am so glad that you are among the wrong thinkers tuned in today. Okay, I have a little bit of bad news to start out. It's not a lot, but, uh, you know, uh, who was it? A friend was talking about 2020. In fact, uh, no, I don't have it. I don't have it available. Here we go. I, I just wanted to pull this up on Facebook because I think her concern is legit. This is what she said. She says, I wish someone would tell me what I should do and think about Rona and riots and the election coming up and the hell that is 2020. <laughs> yeah, I know. She, she's she's doing it for, for a little tongue-in-cheek humor here. But you know there are people who feel that way. There are people who are legitimately going, ah, this is every time we think this couldn't get a little bit crazier. It does. And so I'm going to drop a couple of little truth bombs on you. I'm not telling you you should panic in any way, but um, just every time I ask myself, Whew, what next? An answer comes, and it's like, really? <laughs> okay. So uh, I'll start with uh, the story. I, I, I don't know how I got to be 54 and a half years old without uh, learning the phrase dechero, derecho, rather, derecho, Spanish for straight. And these straight wind storms that came through the other day in uh, Iowa, I guess this was, this was two days ago, damaged one-third of Iowa's crops. And anyway, you, we're talking millions of acres, maybe 10 million acres of corn and soybeans flat on the ground. And in, in the grand scheme of things, you know, you, you may be thinking, well, it's only 10 million acres. You know, there's a lot of acres out there and there's, there's a lot of uh, area. But when you consider that, I think there is like a total of 100 million acres of farmable land in, in the U.S., maybe it's more. That's a pretty big chunk. And most of this would have been destined, I believe, for animal feed or maybe for ethanol. But I know that uh, the, the stories I saw coming out of Iowa were officials going, holy cow, th- there are so many acres of crops that, that are damaged. And you go back to what was it last year where there was the massive flooding in Nebraska. Look, it's, it's not that uh, you can't go to the grocery store and find food, but this is another breakdown in that food supply chain. There were other places that were already hurting because of all the shutdowns and, of course, the, the coronavirus and processing facilities. Remember how that was playing out earlier this year? Here's what I'm suggesting. Run around with your hands in the air screaming. No, that's, that's actually not what I'm suggesting. When you go to the grocery store, when you go to Costco, when you go to Walmart, when you're visiting Sam's Club, when you're doing your normal grocery shopping... It might be wise to just pick up a little bit extra and just build those stores little by little. I'm not saying I know for a fact we're, in, we're headed for a famine and there's going to be these food shortages. I'm just saying there's a lot of stuff that's happening, and this is just another example of something that is completely beyond human control, and yet there it is. Oh, and here's, here's, the other, here's a couple of their little truth bombs, just, <laughs> just to keep it interesting. Dr. Pepper shortages... And here, do you have a chair? Could you want to sit down? Because 
Do you have someone to drive you home after I tell you this next bit? Bacon shortages. Okay, it may not be everywhere, but uh, yeah, it's getting tougher to find bacon. Okay, now we're talking tragedy. This is, this is becoming uh, a human tragedy beyond compare. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek and maybe just a little bit sarcastic, but if you're not doing something to better your situation, to at least prepare a bit while you have that opportunity, you're missing a very, very powerful opportunity to do so. And you might kick yourself just a little ways down the road for not to acting when you could. Lines at the stores are pretty orderly. You know, I know I understand masks are going to be an issue for a lot of people, but get stocked up while there's still plentiful things to stock up on. Just do it little by little. You don't have to do it all in one fell swoop, but pay attention. This is not the kind of stuff that you can just ignore and then suddenly find yourself going, hey, wait a minute, what happened to all the food or why are the prices going so high? We've had plenty of warning. All right. That said, let us move along. We've got a lot to talk about this hour. I want to start out on now that I've given you all the bad news. I want to start with something that I think is one of the most positive things I have read in a while. This is the age of virtue signaling, right? How many corporations look how inclusive we are? Why we are flying the right flag. We are saying the right things. And, you know, it's we, we talked in an earlier episode about the Orwellian origins or the Orwellian nature of the whole social justice movement. And we say one thing, but we mean the exact opposite. We believe in tolerance as they go and beat somebody over the head for not thinking the way that they do. We believe in diversity as they, again, attack people and try to deplatform them or get them fired from jobs because they don't think exactly the way we do. They don't, we don't have sufficient uniformity of thought. It's a really bizarre time. And yet there is real virtue out there. So I, I'm not going to suggest that, uh, you know, reject all virtues because there are people out there thinking they're being virtuous. Look at me. I'm wearing my mask. You're not wearing one. I'm going to yell at you because that's the virtuous thing to do. So if you want to see what a really overlooked, authentic virtue looks like, let's start with the virtue of gratitude. And there's a very powerful example of this in the story of how former Beatle Paul McCartney has lived his whole life. In fact, there were some really golden insights in this article on National Review by Kyle Smith. Now, I have to admit, I'm not uh, the biggest Beatles fan in the world. I, I like the Beatles. You know, it's not like I'm going to, you know, I don't have anything bad to say about them. But at the same time, I have, uh, I have seen a lot of people in uh, positions of prominence and, and positions of, of fame and fortune that... I would say really don't have uh, what I would say a grateful attitude. In fact, they seem very entitled sometimes. And this article by Kyle Smith talking about Paul McCartney gives a really nice accounting of how Paul McCartney has lived his life with an intense gratitude. One of the examples that just blew me away was, uh, for those who know the, the Beatles history, they did not have what you would call an, uh, you know, an amicable breakup. It was ugly. It was like it was like the ugliest divorce and public divorce that you're likely to see. And yet out of it, one of the songs that Paul McCartney wrote, he wrote as, as kind of a, a tribute to John Lennon. It was I believe it. Uh, it was recorded back in 1982. So just a couple of years after John Lennon was killed. And it was such a such a gracious song. 
And he talks about how, you know, I'm very thankful you took me in, you sheltered me, you helped me. Um, Not the kind of thing you would expect from somebody who just had like this really super ugly breakup of a band member. Um, There's another story in here. And this this is one that I thought was was one of the coolest of all was where Paul McCartney was trying to get back to his apartment. And I I can't remember exactly all the places in New York uh, where he was was traveling, but he he wanted seriously to, to just get there without... A hassle, and so he was riding the bus. In fact, he got to his neighborhood and ended up hopping on the neighborhood bus. And and this is the amazing thing, you know. I guess New Yorkers they're pretty cool. They're pretty down to earth about this kind of thing. They they don't have a tendency to get all, ooh, you know, starry eyed and you know, can I have your autograph? That kind of thing. Well, they uh, someone, a lady, a black lady in the back of the bus recognized Paul McCartney and said something. She shouted up to him, "Hey, aren't you Paul McCartney?" And he said, "Yeah." And, and, you know, of course, everybody in the bus kind of looked around. Hey, hey, Paul McCartney's on our bus. And she started shouting up to him, well, what are you what are you doing on this bus? And his answer was, well, hey, instead of shouting all the way across there, why don't you come sit next to me and we'll talk? And that's what she did. And that's the kind of graciousness that it shows. He he shows gratitude in in so many of his actions. And I, I just you'll find a link to the article. It's posted in the show notes which you can access at the com. Paul McCartney's gratitude. And it's just a, a great example of someone who has lots of fame and fortune. One of the things that Kyle Smith points out is very few people in the world have been as famous as Paul McCartney, let alone for as long as Paul McCartney has been famous. I mean, the Queen of England might run, you know, a very close second. Maybe she, Maybe she'll beat him in terms of absolute time, but she sure doesn't ride public transportation. Anyway, take a look at it. See what you think. I I found some really neat, just nuggets of thought there that uh, made me realize with everything that's going crazy and all the stuff that's out of our control, the one thing that you and I could do, regardless of our situation, is find things for which we can feel genuinely grateful. And there's something good that happens when, when you do search out those opportunities for gratitude. Number one, it takes your mind off whatever's going wrong. It's kind of akin to uh, when you're having a really crappy day. Go do something nice for somebody else. I don't know how it works, but it works. It shifts the focus away from, wow, the universe is kicking my tail, to, all right, maybe it's not as malevolent as I was thinking it was. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, phones are open at 801-331-8113. Again, I can't highly enough recommend that article about uh, Paul McCartney and gratitude. I don't know. You don't even have to be a Beatles fan to appreciate that there's just something about having an immense level of gratitude for the things that are good in your life. Sometimes you got to look for them, but it's worth it. So do it. That said, let's move on here. I want to give a shout out to uh, my sponsors. And in fact, I want to give a special shout out to the uh, Staples Turner team at, uh, at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now, if you are looking for a refinance, 
and you're within the sound of my voice, chances are very good you may be within one of the 23 states where Patriot Home Mortgage does their magic. And the Staples-Turner team is, uh, well, they're they're a husband-wife team that bring incredible experience and just good character to the table. And, and I'm going to confess, I'm actually in the process right now of, of talking to them about doing a refinance on, on a property that, that we own as well. Just because it's, it's a good time, you can get very, very low rates, and they have everything you could possibly need. So go to staplesmortgage.com, staplesmortgage.com. I give them my highest recommendation in the sense that I'm willing to use them myself. And if you could mention to them, hey, I came to check you out because Brian said good things about you. John would appreciate that. He'd appreciate knowing that his message reached your ears. Let's talk a little bit about assembly, peaceful assembly of people. Because right now there's a question that is hanging over the public's head. And unfortunately, it's one of those questions that seems to reveal a very disturbing double standard that is emerging here in our country. How many times have you seen churches or weddings or other gatherings of peaceful people, for that matter, protests, and I mean in the sense like, hey, stop infringing on our right to make a living. Stop threatening to throw us in jail for opening our businesses or for not wearing masks or whatever it may be. And and people in officialdom are doubling down on the idea that, well, but we told you you have to do this and therefore you better do it. And at the same time, you have people out there, uh, you know, demonstrating in the streets for defund the police, Black Lives Matter, some of them rioting. And and they ha- these authorities have the gall, particularly these health officials have the gall to tell us that, well, you know, those previous uh, gatherings, church, weddings, family parties, uh, anything protesting lockdown policies, that is a grave, grave danger and will likely spread COVID-19. On the other hand... People protesting against uh, police, people rioting in the streets, people, you know, blocking traffic and harassing motorists. Well, that's actually a good thing. And there's no possibility that, that COVID could ever spread from those kind of mass gatherings. I wish I were exaggerating because to me, that sounds like hyperbole. But that's exactly what's playing out. And it's, it's so sickening. But I think the most disturbing aspect is what about that right to peaceably assemble? Shouldn't that matter? Tim Freeze, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. I'm sorry, writing for the Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org as opposed to Fee.org, talks about COVID-19 and the right of assembly. And he says COVID-19 pandemic, or rather the government's response to it, has raised a lot of concerns in the last few months. In fact, he points out in just the last few months We have seen how some of these lockdown measures represent a major attack on individual liberty, particularly how the closure of churches has undermined the role of religion in a free society. Now, I get it. If you're not religious, that may not seem like a big deal, right? I don't have a dog in that fight. It doesn't really matter. This is where the test of how well do you understand your freedom starts to kick in. And the reason I say that is because if you turn a blind eye when someone else's freedom To do something peaceful is being infringed upon and you say nothing. You have absolutely no right to complain when it's your turn in the barrel and you're the one who's being infringed on. Tim Free says in seeking to assess whether these measures are constitutional, the ones that are shutting down churches. He says there is a more fundamental issue at stake. The First Amendment to the United States Constitution prohibits the federal government from abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peacefully assemble 
and to petition government for a redress of grievances. Now, Tim Priest has given this arguably any order that stops citizens from gathering together is by definition the start of that slippery slope to despotism. So he says, let's take a deeper look at how the Constitution protects our right to assembly and how it's being undermined by our government's approach to the pandemic, starting with the constitutional right of assembly. In order to understand why the government's response to the pandemic has been so problematic, he says it's worth revisiting what the Constitution actually says about the right to assemble. In addition to the First Amendment right for citizens to assemble, the 14th Amendment applies the same stricture to state-level governments. Now, my friend Suzanne Sherman would probably want me to clarify, and I'm going to do this uh, one way or the other. Those rights don't originate with the Constitution. Mind you, we're talking the natural right of assembly, which the Constitution places off limits from government interference through the Bill of Rights. You understand that? Okay, just making that distinction. Some people say, well, the Constitution gives us that right. No, it gives you nothing. All it does is it places written limits on government power against infringing on what is a natural pre-existing right. And it's essential that you understand that pecking order. Otherwise, every right becomes just a privilege that government can convert or withhold or take away or give at its whim. Back to the article. Tim Freeze says, in practice... The way that these amendments have been interpreted has been complex and problematic. In early Supreme Court precedent, the right of assembly was protected only for the purposes of petitioning the government for redress of grievances. Since then, however, the court has recognized the close nexus between the freedoms of speech and assembly. That said, he said, this said, in the past few decades, we've witnessed a problematic shift away from the recognition of the freedom of assembly in itself. And as some legal commenters have pointed out, have or commentators rather have pointed out cases which involve the right to assembly are generally resolved on free speech grounds rather than on the right of assembly per se. Now, I'm going to take you back here just a few years ago uh, to uh, early 2014 down in Bunkerville, Nevada. There were a lot of people who were showing up to protest on behalf of the Bundys. And by protest, I mean, they were there to peacefully assemble and and to make known their displeasure with a very aggressive, militarized U.S. government agency, the BLM, bullying and trying to intimidate and in, in some cases pointing guns at and beating peaceful people for simply standing there watching them trying to steal the Bundy's cattle. They set up what they called First Amendment zones. And, and I went and saw these for myself. If somebody had told me, yeah, you're going to see this little thing looks like a pig pen <laughs> set up with, you know, this uh, this taped fenced off area where you can you can stand here and exercise your First Amendment rights. It's just ridiculous. But that's exactly what was there. And it was done to marginalize and to make sure that, yeah, you can protest, but you got to go stand way out there in the middle of the desert and uh, you can't be near anybody. And certainly we don't want you anywhere where our people who are busy rustling these cattle are going to be bothered by it. Well, people ignored that. And they, they instead assembled at uh, an area there near the Virgin River. And uh, wow, by the end of the week, hundreds and hundreds of people had gathered there. And uh, well, you know how the rest of that story played out. And by the way, just so it's clear, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals may have upheld Judge Navarro's um, dismissal with prejudice of the, the case against the Bundys. But in the realest sense, they have not won 
at least not yet. They've only gone back to square one. Basically, they're where they were in, say, February or maybe March of 2014. Their cattle are still out there on land that the U.S. government says they have no right to be on. They just don't have a militarized task force breathing down their neck and threatening to take it away at this point. This is the kind of stuff that makes me look at to the upcoming election and go, wow, you think things are interesting right now? Just wait and see what they look like here in the very near future, like about the time the election comes and goes. I don't have a sense that things are going to calm down. All right. I'm going to come back to Tim Fries's article in just a few moments. Again, if you want to join in, 801-331-8113. We'll be back after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article on COVID-19 and the right of peaceable assembly. And this is more important than you may think. I mean, even if you didn't have any plans on attending any kind of a demonstration anywhere, it's it's a real problem when government says, "Okay, you may assemble, you may not. They're basically doing the same thing they were doing with businesses that you are essential, you are not. And it has a direct impact on your free speech which has a direct impact on your freedom of conscience and your freedom to think and to believe and to act peacefully. So it's a, it's a real problem. Going to a number two point from uh, Tim Free's article on the Future of Freedom Foundation's website, the pandemic and our rights. He says this casual, dangerous elision between the right of assembly and the right to free speech has been exposed by the pandemic. In an age where most Americans can freely share their views online, The government seems to be saying that the right to assemble does not rely on the ability of citizens to physically gather in one place. That's the logic that has led to at least 42 states passing, quote, emergency orders requiring citizens to stay at home. Now, those orders vary widely between states, but some are very restrictive. California's 19th March stay-at-home executive order, signed by Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom, essentially banned all public gatherings except for those required for what he termed critical sectors of the economy. By the way, some members of Congress have further suggested the federal government should pass a nationwide stay-at-home order along the same lines. Now, these measures are problematic for a number of reasons, but primarily because the logic that underpins them that freedom of assemblies only granted in order to exercise freedom of speech is deeply flawed. And this is especially true when you look at the rise of online censorship and the subsequent gradual waning of privacy laws around the world. It is far from clear that the right to express an opinion online is a necessary substitute for the right to assemble. Tim Fries says, sure, one can post his opinion on Facebook, but there are many countries like India or Turkey. I would say, by the way, look at the UK as well, where there are or have been laws allowing such information to be throttled, collected and analyzed by the government. This obviously does not represent a genuine space for one to address grievances with the same government. In Britain, they'll actually send cops to your door. You posted something that was insensitive, and we're here to discuss that with you. Scary stuff. 
Number three, he says, right idea, wrong approach. Some would argue that both the federal and state governments alike can be forgiven for imposing immediate restrictions on the right of assembly. COVID and the situation created by it has been completely unprecedented. Now, remember, the unemployment rate in the U.S. shot up to nearly 15 percent, which was far worse than the 10.3 percent of the Great Recession. The stock market may have always responded negatively to outbreaks in the past, but it has responded far worse than normally to COVID. In other words, the government was unquestionably facing the largest and quickest economic crash in living memory, in addition to a global health catastrophe. But therein lies the problem. That old adage that says when you're holding a hammer, every problem starts to look like a nail. And he says lawmakers are acutely aware of the need for preserving their own reputations, even if they're aware that lockdown orders don't work like it's often claimed they are. The lawmakers of the legislature, so their response is to legislate. Well, we'll make a law then. But even where and when they are rushed, a panicked response with results like we've seen is clearly unconstitutional. Now, Tim Free says maybe a better approach would have been one of educational and increasing public awareness. Sweden, I believe this is the model you followed. If the risks of COVID-19 were explained to citizens and if their rights as free-thinking, intelligent individuals were respected, they would likely have avoided large gatherings through their own agency. At the broadest level, the government should not legislate, even for the protection of their citizens, even if this is more effectively achieved by granting these same individuals the right to protect themselves. Now, an instructive example of this can be seen in some of the other news on the pandemic. As a result of this has been how many millions of people all over the globe have been forced to turn to remote work as a result of company policy or government laws. That's exactly why video communication services like Zoom have exploded in use and popularity. And along with that have been more security threats as cyber criminals take advantage of it. Subsequently, many governments around the world, including Taiwan and Canada, have taken action to partially or completely ban the use of Zoom in their countries. So he says the question needs to be asked, if government can ban the use of video conferencing software for security purposes, then what else can they ban that they deem a threat? And due to the massive level of hysteria that we're seeing in regards to the health and economic conditions created by the pandemic, just how willing will they be able to do it and get away with it? He says the government has obviously not prescribed that citizens should protect their homes or defined what constitutes adequate security. To do so would be absurd. The fact that they've done so in relation to what masks people should wear or when or where they should gather, that should strike us as equally absurd. Now, something Tim Freeze points out here is, look, this isn't going to come as news to libertarians. The U.S. government has a history of seeking to undermine the Constitution from which it draws its powers. And he says, in fairness, many of the problems with the lockdown orders across this country can be put down more to incompetence and panic rather than conscious, intelligent design. This echoes what uh, my friend Gary Welch was talking about yesterday on the show. But that's all the more reason to call out our representatives when they overstep the limited powers we have given to them. Isn't that something? By the way, there is a terrific article that I'm going to include in today's show notes. This may be the best thing that you read all day. It's from Richard, I'm sorry, Roger W. Coops, who holds a Ph.D. in, I think it's chemical engineering. No, it's in chemistry. He has a Ph.D. in chemistry from University of California, Riverside, master's and bachelor's degrees from Western Washington University, worked in the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industry for a long time. He has a message to young people. 
And you may think, oh, great, here we go. Some oldster lecturing the kids on this is what you need to know. It is seriously one of the best articles that I have seen because his message is don't live your life in a bubble. It's far too long for me to share more than just a couple little excerpts from it here. But can I just uh, I, I just want to put my my two cents in and tell you this is one of the best things that I have read. And I read a lot of good material in the course of a day. I'm constantly looking for stuff that's thought provoking, that has substance, that's based in principles and that actually gives you light and knowledge and a better way to uh, to understand and think clearly about the world and what's going on around us. And it's one of the best things I have read in a very, very long time. In this case, Roger Koop says he is concerned as a scientist because of what is becoming of the human species. He says, we've seen our species devolve in a panic-driven, irrational, hysterical uh, mode in just the matter of a few months. And he says, much of this hysteria has been forced on us by people who were elected to represent us, not dictate to us. Now, he's also careful to point out not all of them have gone this route, but most have. And now they only seem to be serving themselves. Theaters may be closed, but we certainly get to see a lot of grandstanding from these people on a constant basis. And the message they're sending is, we will decide the risks for society. All the risks. And so he talks about as human beings, we live each day of our lives, choosing risks in our lives. Some risks we don't even think about consciously. Most of them fall into kind of a combination mode. That is, we can have some control over the risk, but we're still dependent on others. And he says, believe it or not, risks become mitigated by repetitive behavior, economics, and lots of other factors, all of which we balance in making our decisions. For example, this is a great one. Flying in an airplane offers one little control over the risk. Yet in making that decision, you assume that the pilot and crew are well-trained, the aircraft is maintained and serviced correctly, it's been properly fueled, and that the flight plan doesn't intersect with another aircraft and so on. Hundreds of people are now part of the risk process. You are a non-existent part of that risk. What allows you to make that risk decision is past performance and knowledge of those people assuming the risk. But you always have the choice not to fly. I'm going to skip ahead here because he talks a little bit about infectious diseases and points out they know nothing about risks or risk taking. A virus is a molecule seeking the necessary chemical reaction to sustain its life cycle, period. It has evolutionary advantages beyond what we have yet been able to comprehend. It seeks out cells to survive like we consume food or breathe air. And his point here is technically viruses play no favorites. A virus cell will seek entry into a viable cell that it can then use to replicate itself. So at the early stages of infection, the playing field's pretty level for all hosts. But he also points out humans have done pretty well against them. The main message he is trying to get across to young people is learn from the mistakes of the older generation, the mistakes that we've made. And it's not so much that he's sitting here lecturing them and dispensing, you know, the wisdom of the oracle, you know, against their uh, their will. He's asking them nicely, please consider people who are telling you you are better off living your life in a bubble are not doing so with your best interests in mind. More often than not, they're doing it in a way to consolidate their power and their control over you. And that's not good. You deserve better than that. Again, you'll find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Check it out for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I was going to open it up for some phone calls, but I want to make sure that I get through this uh, this last piece here. Barry Brownstein is one of my favorite uh, writers, and he's got a terrific piece out here on the American Institute for Economic Research's website, AIER.org. How Government Cures Drive Out Real Cures. And I watch this with a lot of interest because I'm I'm more than just a little bit disturbed about the fact checkers and narrative managers. I, I shared an article, for instance, or I shared a video from Ben Swan earlier today about uh, the the masks and using World Health Organization data as well as Centers for Disease Control data that show masks are really not the panacea that some insist we believe. And I shared it on Facebook. Boom. Within minutes. You know, the fact checkers had ferreted it out and put their protective little film over it. Well, now, this is partially false information. And and in fact, in their partially false analysis, this is just a Russian claim. I guess so. I guess the whole Russiagate thing is still something in their minds. But um, my advice is, hey, watch the video first, then make up your own mind. Some people are looking for any reason to believe. Some are looking for any reason not to believe. I'd say take a chance. Be willing to examine something that may challenge what you already believe. But if you're a real truth seeker, you know, you adapt that new truth into your life and and move forward with it. So when, when Barry Brownstein wrote about how government cures drive out real cures, he's specifically talking about that whole controversy over hydroxychloroquine, which... We're still being told by some, well, this is this is just a false, you know, hope that that people are being given. Yet others are coming forward going, no, I have been treating patients and I have this many cases and I can show you clinical evidence. This is working. So let's get some historical perspective. And the first thing that Barry brings up is scurvy. Ah, matey, you haven't heard that word in a while, have you? Well, scurvy, he says, as we all know, is a disease caused by a vitamin C deficiency. And it took nearly 200 years from the time a lemon juice cure for scurvy was discovered until it was promoted by the British government. In fact, he says some think the mental biases that caused the needless deaths of millions have been eliminated in more enlightened modern times. But he says they're wrong. In his book, Bad Medicine, History professor David Wooten explains that scurvy became a major problem only with the beginning of transoceanic voyages. On those voyages, fresh fruits and vegetables were lacking for at least 10 weeks. So on long voyages, the mortality rate from scurvy was 50%. In fact, Wooten writes, uh, one estimate is that 2 million sailors died of this dreadful disease between Columbus's discovery of America and the replacement of sailing ships by steamships in the mid-19th century. Wotan accounts that in 1740, George Anderson commanded a fleet of six ships and 2,000 men, and he lost 1,800 men to scurvy. During the French and Indian War, approximately 133,000 of 184,000 sailors in the British fleet died from scurvy. Many of the dead sailors had been press-ganged into service. That doesn't sound like much fun, does it? Yet most of these deaths were avoidable. By 1601, merchant Sir James Lancaster had already solved the scurvy problem by stocking his ship with lemon juice on his voyage to the East Indies. Wooten reports the practice of stocking lemon juice became standard on ships both of Dutch and East or India. Sorry, let's try that again. English East India companies in the early 17th century. Unfortunately, the lemon juice cure 
Wooten writes, made no sense to doctors with a university education who were convinced that this disease, like every other, must be caused by bad air or an imbalance of the humors. Pressured by doctors, ship captains refused to stock lemons. Barry Brownstein writes, the British Admiralty formally asked the College of Physicians for advice on how to combat scurvy. In 1740, 139 years after the lemon juice cure was known, the response of the College of Physicians was to advocate the use of vinegar and Ward's Drop and Pill. Now, the pill consisted of poisonous ingredients, including antimony, cobalt, and arsenic, thought to purge illness from the body. Wutan points out that historically, that history rather incorrectly discredits a surgeon by the name of James Lind with discovering the cure for scurvy. But Lind's discovery occurred 150 years after the knowledge of the efficacy of lemon juice was already known to the Portuguese, the Spanish, even the first American colonists. Initially, Lind recognized lemon juice, the lemon juice cure, but he didn't understand that scurvy was a nutritional disease. He stuck with the humors theory and believed skin pores clogged by damp air caused scurvy. And he thought lemon juice unblocked clogged pores. Decades after his first success in 1747, Lind himself lost faith in his remedy and again resorted to bloodletting for scurvy patients. So it took another 50 years for lemon juice to be generally adopted by the English Navy. Now, Barry Brownstein says voices of those who knew the lemon juice cure were rejected. In 1786, a merchant sea captain wrote to the British Admiralty informing them that lemon juice cured scurvy. The captain was told that trials have been made of the use of lemons in the treatment of scurvy, and surgeons all agree that lemons and oranges oranges were of no service either in the prevention or cure of scurvy. Oh my gosh, is this sounding familiar? Granted, it's a 200-year time difference, but the, the attitude and the language is, is so similar. Brownstein writes, the Admiralty issued this official advice 185 years after James Lancaster effectively used lemon juice against scurvy. Notice that merchants were more open-minded in their willingness to try new treatments to save lives. Without the power to press gang, protecting crew members and saving lives was actually paramount. Notably, Captain James Cook, commanding the Endeavour during his 1769 voyage to New Zealand and Australia, bucked the Admiralty by serving sauerkraut and fresh vegetables when he made landfalls. And Cook didn't lose a single crew member to scurvy during his almost three-year voyage. Yet in 1773, Lind was still insisting diet was not the cause or cure of scurvy. Now, Wutun is clear. Doctors were culpable. When good arguments are beaten from the field by bad ones, those who do the driving must bear the responsibility. Bad knowledge drove out good, Wutun argues. The advice of doctors was used as a shield by an inflexible government, determined not to yield to the evidence. Now, there's a lot more to this article. And Barry Brownstein writes about remdesivir. Uh, he talks about uh, about other efforts to, to fight COVID-19. The, oh, by the way, maybe you heard in the news at the top of the hour, you know, Russia claims, hey, we've got a vaccine for COVID-19. Have you heard what the official line is, at least from uh, from the American press? And I assume that the, this is part of the official narrative they are expected to carry forward. Well, they've claimed that this uh, this has, uh, you know, has been an effective vaccine, but we've seen no evidence to suggest that to which I would say. And where is your evidence against it? Where is your evidence? Come on, American medicine and come on. American press. 
Look, there's never been a, a more critical time to think outside that narrative, to go beyond whatever you're being told you must believe. Barry Brownstein says, if many people you know are in a constant state of fear for themselves and their children, incessantly monitoring themselves for symptoms, now you know why. It's because public perception has been exaggerated by the media and by public health officials. To the frightened, he says, Dr. Fauci is a hero who they desperately hope will relieve their existential fears of death and existential dread that many have projected onto COVID-19. And this is why some people get really upset when their hero is fact-checked. Barry Brownstein says, refuse Fauci's favored vaccine solution, and some advocate the government should force you to take the vaccine or jail you. Such draconian solutions take root when government feeds existential fears. He says there are likely lemon juice solutions to COVID-19, and perhaps hydroxychloroquine is one of them. But a government that suppresses debate and wants to funnel billions towards politically connected firms will discover that all, will discredit all challengers to their favored solutions. In the name of what they define as the science, the discovery process of real science is suppressed. And Barry Brownstein says science suppressors are part of an illiberal movement whose members, in the words of Jeffrey Tucker, are enemies of freedom and human rights. They threaten the health of billions. I'll have a link to his article. It's well worth the time to read. He always has great food for thought. You'll find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. By the way, I'm also including a link. You can subscribe to the podcast. And if you are so inclined, there's a link there where you subscribe or if you would like to make a donation. If this is bringing value to you, I would encourage you um, throw a couple bucks in the kitty. I would greatly appreciate it and will continue to do a good job knowing that you support it. Our show is brought to you in part today by firesteel.com. Go to their website. Check out their fire starters. Rediscover fire. I promise you will have an experience probably akin to what the first caveman felt when he struck a spark and made flames. It's an amazing feeling. And they have the tools to make it very easy. Something that's portable, it's safe, and takes the place of many hundreds of lighters, many thousands of boxes of matches. And it will last for years and years. That's firesteel.com. When you get to checkout, use my name, Brian, with a Y, B-R-Y-A-N, and they'll throw you a nice discount as well. That's firesteel.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.